the star of the show is Iori Perez. We had high expectations for Iori Perez. <laughs> is it fair to say that he has exceeded them? And a strikeout on that one with the fastball. One away to start the day. Sawinski is down on strikes, making it 25th pitch of the inning is 100 miles an hour. And that's a strikeout. Check and Hedges went around. Strikeout number six. And how do you like that? A little changeup. 3-2. And a called strike three. Swing and a miss. He strikes out the side. Iori Perez continuing to deal. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today is Friday, June 30th. A couple things to talk about. The All-Star starters have been announced, results of the fan voting, and I think the fans have done pretty well. We'll get into that. But we're going to talk about the Marlins and how they might be for real, and it seems like Yuri Perez definitely is for real. We're going to talk about Juan Soto. And it feels like it shouldn't be a hot take to say that Juan Soto is having a great year, and yet somehow it is. And we're going to wonder what if the Mets and or Cardinals and or Padres were all having disappointing seasons actually sold at the trade deadline. And then, of course, Matt and I have a couple of guys you should know a little bit more about. Matt, the All-Star voting came out, just the starters as selected by the fans. And I feel like I'm not sure what's changed necessarily over the last, like, five years or so maybe fans become more educated more interested but i remember you know 10 years ago 15 years ago there would be some selection where you would just roll your eyes because the fans of one team are like loading the ballot box or they're looking at like oh he's got a high batting average or whatever and it it hasn't happened the last couple years and even this year the one guy that stands out to me is that the national league starting shortstop is going to be orlando arcia and then at the same time it's like All the NL shortstops, like Lindor's not having a good year, Swanson, Bogarts, whatever. Trey Turner's not having a good year. He's not necessarily a star in the sense that I would prefer to watch Trey Turner play baseball, but I can't argue with much of this. Like, yay fans. I have no, I mean, like, hey, at the end of the day, it's like what the fans want. And certainly there are obvious clubs whose fans coalesce around their players more than others. I mean, this year we see the the Rangers have, what do we have? They have four starters. Um, The Braves have three starters right so like that's you know it's pretty clear there's some there's some i don't know, i don't call it stuffing the ballot boxes there but the Braves have always done well i think they've got a very large reach um in terms of their fans it's like much of the south is Braves fans and i think that shows when it comes comes to all-star voting i mean it always comes back to like what do you want the game to be do you want it to be like the stars like the biggest names or the guys having the best first halves and actually now that the voting is all digital and like you actually see stats like right there. Like I actually think it's in some ways it's geared more towards now towards who's having the best first half, right? That's how you end up with Orlando Arcia amongst over like some big name players, Trey Turner, Francisco Lindor, Dansby Swanson, Xander Bogart. That's kind of wild, right? Like it's and like what's also wild. I mean, this just speaks to just like self-hating Mets fans, like not liking their own players. Like Arcia crushed Lindor in the phase two of the battle. Like it was like the biggest blowout of any of them, um, which is pretty wild to me. Um, and then like, you know, but the, the ones that kind of leave me, I don't want to say scratching my head a little bit, but I think one of my guys from recent episode, Jonah Heim over Adley Rutschman. As a baseball fan, I think I want to see Adley Rutschman in the All-Star game. Like this is like, I feel like this is 10 years from now, that's going to be one that was like, huh, that's kind of weird. J.D. Martinez over Bryce Harper. Like I know Harper was hurt at National League DH. Like I kind of want to see Bryce Harper in the game. Like that's, 
that's that's my I see you give me a dirty look, but like that's kind of how I, I I do to me I'm more of like I want to see the stars and I would rather see Turner, Lindor, Bogarts, or Swanson in the game over Orlando Garcia. That's 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 me, but I realize that's just one man's opinion. I wouldn't say dirty look. I would say disapproving look. I, I agreed with half of what you said, right? Like Adley Rutschman over Jonah Heim, that is definitely like what I believe it should be Adley Rutschman over Jonah Heim. Heim's had a good year. That is definitely more of a mildly better first half vote, right? Gita Martinez is a star. Bryce Harper hasn't hit a home run in like two months. I don't know if that's true, but it's been forever, right? He has not, he's not really been that great since he's come back. And JD Martinez has been a star. I have no problem with that one whatsoever. Heim over Rushman. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Like Josh Young at third base, he should make the team. Should he be the starter? Probably not. I, I don't, I think where I disagree is I care about guys who make the team. I don't really care about who starts the game, right? Like if you're on the roster, you're an all-star. You're the starter, you're coming in next. I, I don't care so much about that. But J.D. Martinez is having a really good year. Okay, I think we can we can disagree. We agree, agree to disagree on J.D. Martinez over Harper. The other thing that stands out to me is I think that like a lot of the voting defies a lot of what would be my assumptions of like of fan bases and who's got bigger fan bases, whose players are more popular, right? We have two Rays starting the All-Star game. You've got Yandy Diaz starting the All-Star game, and you have Randy Rosarena starting the All-Star game. I realize Randy Rosarena has had like a bit of a, because of his postseason and WBC performance, he's got like a broader recognition and fan base, so to speak. But like Yandy Diaz, that's kind of that's kind of wild to me that he would, that the two Rays would end, up starting, would end up starting the All-Star game. We only have one Yankee, Aaron Judge, who probably won't play because he's hurt, and you have no Mets, right? It's like, it's interesting to me that some of these things kind of defy what you would you would you would kind of expect. And in a weird way, it's also kind of I mean, it's kind of wild to me that, and I think it's a great choice that Corbin Carroll is starting the All Star game. Like this is the team with one of the smallest fan bases in baseball. I think he totally deserves it. I think it is awesome that Corbin Carroll is in the All Star game. So it's just I've I've been looking at the results and like really trying to make sense of it because it there's like I don't want to see like the kind of inconsistencies with the way certain players are getting in over other players. Whereas like Braves fans were clearly like jazzed and got all their guys in. But then at second base, it was like, no, arise. We want to rise at second base over Ozzy Alpes. Like that's a lot of these things kind of surprised me when, when, when all was said and done. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's interesting. So you mentioned Aaron, uh, the Yankees, right? Aaron Judge got selected as a starter. He is almost certainly not going to play. I can't imagine he's actually going to play in this game. He counts as the Yankees representative, and it's possible they will not have someone in uniform on the field. I don't think there's actually a scenario <laughs> where that happens, where they don't find a way to get Garrett Cole or somebody on the team, but it's possible, right? And and the Mets could have one representative because the Mets are having a terrible season, and maybe that's Nimmo. Maybe that's David Robertson. But imagine if between the Yankees and the Mets, there was one uniformed representative <laughs> And there's like half a dozen rays and a couple of diamondbacks. And I think that would be funny. So the way this works, right? This is just the starters. I think people don't have a great understanding of what happens next. How do you fill up these rosters? So there's really three things, right? The fans voted in the starters, which we already have. The players get to vote too. And they get to vote in eight pitchers. That's five starters and three relievers. And one backup for each spot. I don't think people realize that the majority of the team is actually player vote. (laughs) And then... (laughs) After that, uh, you have uh, a couple of remaining spots, which uh, MLB, the commissioner's office, will choose. And that is mostly, we got to make sure every team has one player. So that's how, I don't know, Jason Foley 
or somebody is going to be in the all-star game because the tigers need one manager has nothing to do with this that hasn't been true since 2017 people get all angsty and it's going to be like oh you know brian snicker whomever didn't pick my guy no there's nothing to do with it it's not that um i always get, find it interesting that the players end up with the selections i find most confusing right the fans do a pretty good job the commissioner's office is a little bit, you know, handheld by the fact that you're handcuffed by the fact they have to get a guy from each team. And then that's usually like the middle part where the players vote in somebody. It's like, oh, that guy used to be good. I don't think he's that good anymore. What I'm trying to get to is when they vote in JT or Muto over Will Smith, as I like 100% believe they do, and Will Smith doesn't make the All-Star game again, I'm going to be very upset about this. Will Smith, the Dodgers Will Smith, rules. He's never made an All-Star game before. What are we doing here? Come on, players like, Fingers crossed. We'll find out Sunday, uh, 5.30 p.m. Eastern on ESPN. I have one more all-star take I want to share, and I want I want your opinion on this because, you know, I have kids who are eight and six, and you have kids who are, what, seven and four, something like that, and how that has changed my view of the all-star game, one representative per team. Um, for a long time, I was like, that rule is stupid. I think that we just get the best players on the field. And my kids are Mets fans now, and they might have one representative, and I'm going to watch the All-Star game with them. And I already know that the thing they're most going to care about is whenever that Mets player gets in the game, and they're going to be super excited to see that player in the game. And I think that that has like totally changed my perception of like seeing the game through like a burgeoning fan's eyes. And especially of like a team that generally, not generally, but like I think last year the Mets had like five players, where it was almost like where in the past, where something more of like the teams where they often only have like one representative and like trying to get the young fans of those teams get excited about it. What is, what's your take? You were raising Mets fans. I am raising a Colorado Rockies fan. So <laughs> let me tell you that when, who was it last year? CJ Crone, maybe? Somebody made the All-Star game. He was very excited about this. I, I, I agree with you. I think you can kind of twist the accusation of like, MLB isn't doing enough to grow the game because that's fair in a lot of ways. But you can make that say whatever you want because when Jason Foley makes this all-star team, who was it? Joe Mantiply last year. That was the guy too, right? Like, oh, people aren't tuning into the all-star game to see Joe Mantiply. And it's like, yeah, but would you rather tell an entire team's fan base they just have nothing? Like there's nobody there? I don't like that either. I'm with you. I've, I've changed my mind on this. I guess I don't know if that's true. I don't know if I ever really felt that strongly about it in the first place. But every team should have a guy. I'm completely fine with that. Not only that, you're going to make Joe Mantiply's entire life now. You know, he gets to go in or Jason Foley, whoever to be this year and say, yeah, I, I shared a locker room with uh, Shohei Otani and uh, Mike Trout and, uh, you know, Mookie Betts or whoever's on your side. That's super cool. Like that guy being able to say that once is more important to me than Freddie Freeman saying it for the eighth time or whatever. I'm with you on that. I think we agree on that. And that's a good place to leave it. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike Petriel and Matt Myers. Each week, we move into our three batter minimum, where there are three interesting topics we want to get into. This is a fruitful week. There are lots of topics to think about. But our first one is about the Marlins and Yuri Perez, their young pitcher. He's 20 years old. He's got a 134 ERA. He's six foot eight. Matt and I joked with each other earlier. We've probably talked more about the Marlins in the first half of this season and over the last winter than we had in like the last five seasons combined. And I think we need to eat a little bit of crow because I think we were both pretty dismissive of their chances this year. And yet here they are, 48 and 34. They are six out in the East. They are the top wildcard team. 
They are off to the second best start in team history, topped only by the 1997 team that won the World Series. And they're playing the Braves this week. They just swept the Red Sox, and they're playing the Braves this weekend, which I did not think in early July I would say this Marlins series is a must-watch. But Braves-Marlins is actually going to be awesome. Like I'm really, really looking forward to it, especially because of what's happened when they played the Braves already this year. If you were to look at the Marlins, their run differential is zero. They've scored as many as they've allowed, but they are plus 32 against every team that's not the Braves and minus 32 against the Braves. This is going to be a lot of fun to watch. For sure. And if you look at their season, I mean, obviously, Arise is the biggest reason they're overachieving, I'd say. But the second biggest reason is probably Yuri Perez, who's come up from the minors and been lights out, um, like legitimately dominant pitcher thus far. And I think, I mean, the narrative is going to become, to me, there's already talk of like, what do we do with this inning? This is like a, a little bit of a Steven Strasburg situation here where like the, the Nationals famously or infamously like shut him down in the middle of a playoff race. And I guess in the long term, maybe it sort of worked out because they had years of success where he was a part of it. and They won a World Series. And then, of course, then they re-signed him to a long deal. He may never pitch again. We're getting ahead of ourselves as it applies to Yuri Perez. But right now, he has thrown 78 innings this season. His career high is 78 innings two years ago. He threw 77 innings last year. And so it's, you know, it's not even July as we record this. Are they going to let him pitch? It's like, you know, 150 innings, possibly into the postseason. Like, I don't know. I, I don't know what you what would you do, Mike? I think you have to let him pitch a little while longer before you worry about it, because you need to see who's coming back in the rotation and you need to see how the rest of the rotation performs. It's hilarious to me that this team is this many games over when Jazz Chisholm missed most of the season with injury and he's back and Sandy Alcantara has been downright bad a little bit better lately. But your top three starters right now on this team are Jesus Lazardo. Perez and Braxton Garrett, who's been like shockingly good. And then I think you're hoping Johnny Cueto comes back at some point, you know, like the Trevor Rogers has barely pitched this year. Edward Cabrera has been hurt. I think you kind of hope you're getting some of those guys back, but otherwise let him cook. Like I'm not saying go all in risk his future and all that, but you're not shutting him down now. You know, you find a way to skip a start of his, you you give him extra rest between starts if you can, but I I cannot see a scenario where they're going to shut him down unless they totally collapse, um, which they might. We'll get back to that in a second. I I don't think they'll shut him down. Because, I mean, the thing is, it's not just Yuri Perez, right? Like, it's Braxton Garrett's career high in innings is 88 from last year. Jesus Lazardo, his career high is, you know, looking up right now, 100. So it's like they have a few guys where this is the same thing, where it's like they're kind of going into uncharted territory with all of them. And I don't know, like, I think to me, Strasburg is kind of the perfect example of like, no matter what you do, you still can't protect these guys. So like, as long as you're like reasonable with them, I think you have to keep pitching them. As you said, maybe skip a scarf, but even like, there's no magic form. There's no magic formula to keeping them healthy. So as long as you're like treating them reasonably and giving them adequate rest, I, I I'd be really disappointed if they did anything. Like I've you know, rumors of them optioning Perez to the minors to sort of like stretch him out. Like, there's no magic formula. You're having this really interesting, exciting season. I think you have to. You have to ride out. And the one thing about Sandy Alcantara, we've talked about this a little bit, like, and why he's still so valuable is even having a bad season, he still basically pitches seven innings every game. And that's so valuable because it saves their bullpen so that, like, it makes it easier when these other guys are pitching. We can be like, okay, well, maybe I could, I can, I can only ask, I don't need to ask Perez or Lazaro to go five today because I have a well rested bullpen because 
Alcantara, I can feel feel good about giving me six, seven, sometimes eight innings on a regular basis. Like there's hardly anyone else in baseball you could say that about. And actually, um, Theo Theo Theodorosa on MLB.com today had a piece about the Marlins bullpen, which is like if you look at the underlying metrics, it's like a sneaky good bullpen that like has has kind of over 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 defied expectations. I will say if you go by expected weight on base against. You know, metric that takes into account quality of contact, strikeouts, and walks. The Marlins have seven of the top fifty relievers in baseball and five of the top twenty-two entering play today. Like that's pretty wild. And I'm not saying I necessarily like, oh, that's a thing that's going to stay. But their bullpen's been pretty good. Uh, honest question, and maybe you've already looked, so maybe I should have asked you this two hours ago. How many Marlins relievers can you name? Because I agree with you, they've pitched well. They are so anonymous. Like AJ Puck, who they've got for JJ Blade, he's been really well. And I'm looking at the other names here. I follow baseball pretty closely, and I'm like, who are half of these guys? Huascar Brasso, Ben, Tanner Scott, Andrew Nardi, Dylan Floro, I remember from the Dodgers, uh, Stephen Okert, JT Chagua. Like these are these are real players, and they all pitched well. Like I'm I'm impressed. I'm not trying to diminish them. I'm just like these are really anonymous, out of nowhere guys. Like, do you do you believe in this team? I guess is the question, right? You look at the offense, and I know Arise is a big story, and he's great, right? They still have only the sixth fewest runs per game. They are just above Cleveland and Milwaukee in runs scored. Those are bad offenses. Pitching's been very good, right? Eighth best runs allowed per game. I think what's happening here is they're overperforming a little bit in exactly the way these kind of teams tend to overperform in that they are 19 and five in one run games, which is great. That's a great way to win games. But we've seen this a hundred million times in the history of baseball. Like that's never a skill that lasts long but sometimes it lasts an entire season right and i guess that's all that matters exactly that's it's like you saw we've seen this like with the mariners like they've ever year year, over year it's like one run game score can like decides their entire record so like yeah maybe it can last a season i mean the marlin it's it's wild like yesterday i was not watching their game against the red Sox. i was in the car i get an alert brian bellow has a no hitter through seven innings i was like oh wow it looks like the marlins are gonna finally lose no because they hadn't allowed a run either and they went (laughs) They they got a bunch of hits in the eighth, and they ended up being the Red Sox two to nothing. Not even a one run, not even a one run win to uh, to pad their uh, to pad their numbers there. Do I believe in them? I mean, they've built an I don't want to say cushion, um, but I think that like now, given a month ago, right when it looked like the Mets and Cardinals might be stabilizing their season, I was like, okay, they'll probably eventually catch, and we'll, we'll talk about those teams in a minute. But now I'm kind of like, I don't know who's necessarily going to catch the Marlins. And I think they'll probably make some strategic deadline moves to beef up the lineup. And like that should probably, you know, raise their raise their floor a little bit. What about you? Uh, that's what I was going to say. They desperately need a left side infielder who can hit at all. You know, whether that's a shortstop or a third baseman. And I I wish I had, like, is it like Jaime Candelario? Is it Tommy Edmond? Like, Someone like that, it would be so funny to me to see like the Mets or Cardinals selling and the Padres and the Marlins be the team that's buying because I just think that would be weird and hilarious. Um, I don't believe in them in the sense that I don't think the the success in one run games is for real and I, I don't trust the infield outside of a rise. But I like the outfield. You go and get like a veteran starter and a left side bat, and I mean they're not going to catch the Braves. But do I believe they can make the wild card? Yeah. I, the, the wins are banked, right? The wins don't come off the board, even if I'm not sure I buy it going forward. I mean, the Phillies didn't catch the Braves last year, and then they just beat them in the playoffs. <laughs> yeah. And, and actually, that would be great if the Marlins won the World Series because um, they never win the division. <laughs> they have two rings. They never win the division. 
this is how they do it. All right, our second topic. As I said, this shouldn't be a hot take, but have you noticed that Juan Soto has been insanely good? Like people are shocked when they say, oh, Juan Soto, like, oh, that guy's been such a disappointment since the trade to San Diego. And like, yeah, he was underwhelming last year for sure. The first month of this year wasn't great. Since May 1st, he is hitting 305, 452, 548 at OPS of exactly 1,000. And what that means is even with his very disappointing first month, if you look at OPS plus, he is the fourth best hitter in baseball on a list where Otani is number one, Acuna is number two, Yanti Diaz number three, and uh, Soto is tied with Luis Arise. He's been so good, and people don't seem to want to hear it. And I, I wonder if that's A, well, it's three things, right? Number one, he got off to a slow start. Number two, the Padres are a total disappointment. And number three, I think people get kind of sick of hearing this guy really is the next Ted Williams, even though he is the next Ted Williams. Like he literally is Ted Williams if Ted Williams is alive today. Remember, he doesn't turn 25 until October. <laughs> he is almost an entire year younger than Spencer Steer of the Reds, who is going to get some rookie of the year votes this year. He's so young. He's amazingly good. And yet, whenever we talk about this, people say, no, he's not that good. He's overrated. Like, no, he's not. He's Juan Soto. He's incredible. It was, it's a great example of like how patient we have to be as baseball fans because like all the indicators were there. He was still hitting the ball hard. He wasn't striking his, you know, there's, there's some slight changes in terms of his profile from, from maybe his best year with, with Washington. But right now he's got a career high hard hit rate. He's got a walk rate higher than a strikeout rate. Like he's all the, all the things, maybe hitting the ball a little bit on the ground a bit more, but overall, what, I mean, 160 OPS plus is like, that's, you know, Hall of Fame level OPS. Like it's there's only like usually like only one or two players in a given season who can do that over a full season. And in the past, Juan Soto has been one of them, and he's back to being one of those players again. Yeah, I think what happens too is um, people get a little angsty about plate discipline and like walks being good, right? Because you look at a guy who's got power, and I think people want him to be a little more aggressive, swing more, like put the ball in the seats, and and that's fine. I'd rather a home run than a walk too. But also, that's very good to not make it out. Like, it's the point of baseball is to go up there and not make it out. And when we say he's actually Ted Williams, so if you go back through 1900 and you look at all the players ever played through age 24, the minimum of 1500 plate appearances, he right now has the 14th best OPS plus. And usually when I do these lists, I say, and I'm not going to read you the first 13 because that's boring. No, these names are so good. I am going to read you the top 13. Uh, Ted Williams, Frank Thomas, Ty Cobb, Willie Wells, Lou Gehrig. Mike Trout, Stan Musial, Albert Pujols, Mickey Mantle, Jimmy Fox, Trish Speaker, Dick Allen, Roger Hornsby, and Juan Soto above Willie Mays. Like, we're, we're prone to hyperbole, I think, in saying things are the best this, the worst that. But in this case, it's true because you don't do what he has done to this point without being an all-time great. The one thing that I don't want to stand out, it's like sort of surprising that looking at his, his career stats now – I did not realize until this moment that he's only had one season where he exceeded 30 home runs. And that was 2019 when like you and I exceeded 30 home runs. So um, it's not a knock about him. It's just like the, the hitter that he is. He's not a pure home run hitter. So I think that sometimes when the past, like the, the, he sort of fails a little bit in the, the counting, the counting stat black ink test, right? Because doesn't hit huge, doesn't have huge home run, home run numbers. And because he walks so much, he doesn't have big RBI numbers, which a lot of fans, whether you like it or not, are the first thing that they look at when they look at like a player page, right? So I think those two things maybe hurt him a little bit in the the more, you know, traditional fan sense. But obviously he's an extremely well-rounded hitter. And it's amazing, amazing to me, and maybe this is a good transition to 
our next topic. Like, if you had told me before the season, Soto's going to be hitting like this. Fernando Tatis is going to come back from suspension and basically play like he has not missed a beat and be like really good offensive player, maybe the best defensive right fielder in baseball, like showing no adjustment period needed. I'd be like, oh, well, the Padres will be a juggernaut. And like that definitely has not happened. And if not for the Mets and Cardinals, they would be the most disappointing team in baseball. In fact, they're just, they're just number three instead, or maybe number two at the Cardinals. I don't know how you rank them. And now there's talk that they might be sellers. And I think that's kind of wild because like the Padres or the Mets or the Cardinals becoming sellers could really make the trade deadline a lot more interesting. Briefly, before we move on, since you mentioned Tatis's defense, I wrote uh, AJ Casavell's Padres newsletter this week. And with the help of our friend Jason Bernard, I looked into a question I had, which was if he wins the gold glove in right field, which it seems like he might, he would in fact be the first ever player to move from the infield to the outfield and win a gold glove in his first year as a full-time outfielder, which I think is exceptionally cool. He's been unbelievably good out there. All right, our third topic is... What if the Mets and Cardinals and Padres or some combination of the three actually ended up being sellers? And, you know, one thing that I think we have talked about with the trade deadline this year is it seemed like it was going to be a little bit of a bummer just because most of the teams likely to be sellers are not teams who have anything to sell, right? The A's, the Rockies, the Nationals, et cetera, et cetera. Well, now if you get some of these teams who have like big name players and have been terribly disappointing and they actually sell, that spices up the trade deadline a lot. And I'm not convinced that they'll sell in the sense of it's like, we're going to start our five-year rebuilding plan. now. I don't think that's what's happening here. The Mets certainly don't won't do that. The Cardinals do not have that in their DNA. AJ Preller might make trades just for the sake of it, because that's what he does. But you know, if you look at the playoff odds right now at Fangraphs, the Mets are at 9%. The Cardinals are at 9%. The Padres are at 24%. That's only because Fangraphs views them as uh, having better odds for the rest of the season. Like they are viewed as the best team for the remainder of the season and they have the best record right now. So it's still not good, but the Padres have a little bit clearer of a path than the Cardinals and the Mets do. The Mets are in such a state that Steve Cohen actually had to call a press conference just to talk about what sort of state they're in. Like that's not great. And um, the Cardinals, let's start with the Cardinals. They have not been under 500 since 2007. They have not lost 90 games since 1990. Adam Wainwright has a 745 ERA, and I think it's got to be an open question as to whether he even takes them out again because he has just not been able to get any outs. This is not a team that ever sells because it's not a team that's ever bad, and I find that really interesting because there's no precedent. You cannot look at previous Cardinals trade deadlines where you know John Mozalek and Mike Kirsch have made trades like this because they they just don't. like They buy. They don't sell. If they were going to do it, they have some free agent guys, uh, Wayne Wright, who's obviously not going to get traded or bring much back. Jordan Montgomery, Jack Flaherty, Chris Stratton, Jordan Hicks. Those are all pitchers. Uh, Paul DeYoung is a club option for next year. The big two, Paul Goldschmidt is signed for one more year. Nolan Arenado is signed through 2027. It's sort of hard for me to see them moving Arenado just because you know he bypassed his opt-out to sign with them, said he wanted to be there. He's not actually having a very good season. So there's that. Paul Goldschmidt? I could see that. He's, what, 37? There's Paul Goldschmidt in Philadelphia. That looks pretty good. There's, like, no shortage of teams you could find for him. The question is, will they actually do it? Like, how bad do they have to be before that happens? Yeah, I mean, I kind of think they should stay the course. Just, I mean, you look at the, you look at their division. I know, we keep, I know we keep going back to this, but I just think that, like, you know, the, the Brewers, the the Reds, like they, they, you know, the Brewers lineup is pretty weak. The Reds rotation, I don't really trust it. And like, I mean, we saw, I mean, the Cardinals two years ago, right? They looked dead in the water and then they, what did they win? Like 19 straight games or something? 
and you know they are 14 games under 500 but like it's not hard to see them and i guess we they've got you know basically 30 games left before the trade deadline so like if they go 20 and 30 they're not going to sell right if they go 25 and 30, you know to 20 and 10 they're not going to sell if they go 15 and 15 then it's a it's a real open question right so it's like they 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 probably are going to wait the i mean all these teams are probably going to wait till the end but like it could go either way the goldsmith would be fascinating will Leach wrote about this recently there's a lot of really compelling reasons to do it. Um, it just does not feel like it's in the Cardinals' DNA at all to do it. Um, but other than that, they don't really have anything that that's... I guess, I mean, Jordan Hicks might net you something. Jordan Montgomery, maybe. Jack Flaherty's now got a hip issue, and his peripheral numbers aren't very good either. But, like, he's the kind of guy that, like, someone might take a chance on thinking that they, they will be the ones to untap the upside. So other than trading... Goldschmidt, I'm not sure there's any sort of like franchise altering move they could they could make. I mean, they have too many outfielders who haven't really worked out. You know, like you're selling low on Carlson, you're selling low on Tyler O'Neill, so that's probably not going to be it. I would love to see Jack Flaherty go to a pitching lab team, like send him to the Rays. I know he's injured, and so that's fine, but that would be interesting to see. I guess the answer here is it's um you know a month away, so check back in two weeks and see what's happening. But I think what will happen is they won't buy and they will, they'll like half sell. They'll trade off a Jordan Montgomery here and Chris Stratton there and then have a generally disappointing end of the season, which will make nobody happy because they won't play well and they won't have gotten anybody for next year. Sorry, Cardinals fans. It's time for you to wear one. It's been a long time. <laughs> Speaking of, t- of fans who know how to wear one, the Mets. Boy, it's been rough for the Mets. Uh, they've only got three obvious free agent guys, right? Carlos Carrasco. David Robertson, who's been great, and Tommy Pham's been spectacular. Uh, defense, not so much, but he's been crushing the ball. Other notable players, Mark Hanna has a club option. Starling Marte signed for two more years. Nobody wants to talk about any of those guys. They want to talk about if Max Scherzer's going to get traded or if Justin Verlander's going to get traded. Those guys both have a lot of say over that. The Mets can't just up and tell them that they're Mariners now or whatever. Um, I think that they... I think Steve Cohen would be open to doing like a buy and trade kind of thing at the same time. You know, like he can't blow it up. If you want to have any chance at Otani next year, it's not just going to be about money. It's got to be about, hey, this is a place where you can win. And right now it doesn't look like that. But then it's also hard to say it will look like that if you trade Verlander or Scherzer. You might also just want to extend Pete Alonso. He's only got one more year of arbitration left for free agent. That would be a good thing to do because I don't see how you replace him next year. You can't trade Jeff McNeil is not playing very well at all. You're not going to trade Lindor, who's not playing that well. You just signed Nimmo. You just signed Senga. It feels to me like they're not going to trade those big two pitchers, and then the remaining moves are kind of, I mean, fam's fine. What else? What else can they do? Yeah, I mean, Robertson would probably bring back something decent. You know, we talk about there's not that many relievers obviously available. Roldis Chapman, like, he's pro- he's pretty similar to Roldis Chapman in terms of, like, I think what he would what he would bring bring back maybe a little less he makes a lot more money although steve cohen said like i'll basically i consider this money spent like i'll eat anything to sort of to, to improve the the prospect return fam i will say i have a lot of incorrect takes my the Mets should be playing tommy fam a lot more take from like six weeks ago was was a good one so i'm gonna tout, tout, tout myself there i think the scherzer thing is really interesting because if the mets have a terrible they don't they don't trade him and i realize it's hard to trade him but if they don't trade him and the team looks like a disaster, there's a good chance he opts out. So, like, you lose him anyway. So, like, if you can find a scenario where you're like, you know what, like, this guy could be – he's actually been pitching pretty well um, for the last few starts. Um, where, like, similar again, similarly, hey, 
they go to another team. Steve Cohen's like, I'll I'll pay you know ninety percent of the remaining salary. You give us a good prospect, we'll trade you Max Scherzer. I think it's interesting because there's also some game theory where like, well, what if Max Scherzer opts out? Then he's a free agent. You can go back and resign him again if you want, if you like him. Of course, the problem with that is if he doesn't opt out, there's a lot of teams that are of no interest in paying Max Scherzer whatever his contract is, which is like $35, $40 million next year. So I think that's like, there's a lot of layers to it. So I realize it's probably not going to happen. He's like the name I'm watching because I think that like, you know, and our own Anthony DeComo reported the other day, he's already sort of like said like, whether it's, you know, through back channels or what, like for the right situation, I would waive my no trade clause. So I feel like the wheels are already kind of spinning there. And it, that one, that one's interesting to me. Yeah, that would be, it's kind of fun with the Cohen aspect here because, you know, he's making $40 million. And so that means there's a handful of competing teams where normally you would look at it and go, oh, there's no, this no, they won't even consider paying this guy that much. And now all of a sudden, if Cohen's like, hey, you improve the prospect and I will eat as much of his contract as I am allowed to under the CBA. And all of a sudden you can start envisioning like, oh, Max Scherzer on the Reds, on the Diamond Packs, on the Orioles, on the Marlins. Obviously, he's got to agree to go to these places. It's not just like, you know, playing with lines on a spreadsheet. But that that opens up a lot more doors. And I find that pretty cool. Like I would love to see some teams that are not traditional buyers get access to guys like this just because the season's almost upside down, right? Like in terms, especially in the National League. These three teams that we're talking about, including the Padres, are not playing well. You've got teams like the Giants and the Diamondbacks and the Reds and the Marlins who are playing unexpectedly well. I hope the trade deadline turns upside down for that reason as well. The third team is the Padres. I don't know what to make of the Padres. They uh, have a bunch of interesting free agent guys. Josh Hader, Blake Snell, who's been awesome. Four earned runs in his last seven games. I usually don't like Blake Snell. I don't enjoy watching him pitch. He's been amazing. Drew Pomerantz has been hurt a while. You know, Gary Sanchez, Brugia Dor is not that much. Juan Soto has one more year of arbitration. I don't think Juan Soto is going to get traded, but I didn't think that last year either. And yet here we are. Uh, Trent Grisham has two more years. There's a bunch of guys they've signed long term. So it kind of comes down to me, uh, Hader or Snell. And I think I think both of those guys would bring back something really good. Like Blake Snell reunion tour with the Rays. Who wouldn't want to see that? I think, yeah. I mean, Snell is interesting. I think so. I think Soto's going to be interesting again. I really do. Like they're not going to trade him, not in July. I don't think they will. But you look at their long term. You know, it's always hard to know what a, what an owner is willing to do. But even as, as we say this now, their 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 projected payroll for twenty twenty five is one hundred seventy five million. For twenty six, it's one sixty two. Twenty twenty seven, it's one sixty two. And that doesn't even include none of that includes Soto, right? So they are they are they going to re sign him and basically have like. 200 plus in, invested in like four players because um, that's kind of where they're headed. You know, they have, they've locked up Machado through, you know, 2029 and Bogarts through that, at least that long in Tatis. Um, and on the pitching side, they do have Musgrove and, and Darvish locked up, but like knowing also AJ Peller's history of wheeling and dealing, because he can go out and be like, hey, like you get him for a year and a half. He's also like, I don't want to say one dimensional player, doesn't have a ton of defensive value. There would be suitors. Yeah. He's the one I'm watching. But again, they've got 30 games left. So my guess is they're going to wait until the very end. But that's the really interesting one. We think of like ways like the trade deadline could really get blown up. To me, one guy on each of those teams, Goldschmidt, Scherzer, and Soto is what would make it really spicy. And I th- could I could see a scenario for all of them. Rate those three teams most likely to sell to least likely. I think the Mets are the most likely to sell, followed by the Padres, followed by the Cardinals. Yeah. Because I think that like, I think, you know... I think that Cohen is pretty, I mean, at least the way he talks openly, is like, you know, very like big picture, long-term, et cetera. And that said, like 
your point, they're not going to they're not going to burn it down because they want to compete next year and, and probably presumably want to make a case to Shohei Otani. But even trading Scherzer, I don't think is burning it is burning it down. I think it's just like a tactical if if the opportunity presents itself, a tactical move. But I'd imagine that Robertson and Fam will get traded for you know second tier prospects as well. Boy, we didn't even talk about the Phillies in this conversation. The National League is so wild and bizarre this year. Like the only thing that's gone as expected, two two things have gone as expected, right? The Braves are excellent and the Nationals and Rockies are not. And otherwise, everything else is up for grabs. It's been a lot of fun. I think the second half is going to be super cool. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back and finish up with a pair of guys you really ought to know a little more about. We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike Petriello and Matt Myers. Each week, we like to introduce you to a couple of guys you need to know more about. Very excited about my guy because I get to talk about the National Hot Rod Association on a baseball podcast. I am, of course, talking about Washington Nationals outfielder Lane Thomas, who's having a great year. Look away, Cardinals fans. I know it's another one. I'm sorry. 298, 346, 513. So he's got a 138 OPS plus. 93rd percentile speed, 95th percentile arm strength, although his defense is not actually that good. But still, he can hit. In parts of five seasons, he now has a 114 OPS+, and this is kind of his breakout year, which is great because the Nationals have not actually had a good year. He's been, if not their best player, one of their best players. And as I kind of referenced before, I do regret to tell you he is yet another ex-Cardinals outfielder who has found success somewhere else. He was actually drafted by the Blue Jays back in 2014, out of high school, July 2nd, 2017, it was the very first trade for new Cardinals GM Mike Kirsch, who was promoted on June 30th. He got Lane Thomas from Toronto for $500,000 in international cap space. It gets complicated and wonky, but basically the Cardinals had gone over in the previous signing period. They had more money than they were really going to use. So they just sent it for a minor league outfielder named Lane Thomas, who played nine games in the minor leagues and then broke his foot. And then the season was over. He got into the majors in parts of three seasons with the Cardinals from 2019 to 2021. Didn't really do all that much. And then when they traded him, and this is why this isn't actually that bad for Cardinals fans, to Washington in July 2021, it was for John Lester, who was actually pretty good for the Cardinals down the stretch. So you can at least look back on that and say, well, we had 105 young outfielders. John Lester performed for us. It's not so bad. Here's the fun part. His dad... Mike Thomas was a hot rod driver. That is so cool. My dad worked for the phone company. This guy's dad is a hot rod driver. Mike Thomas won a race. Um, this is from a story I read in Chicago in 1998. And apparently three-year-old Lane was on the pedestal signing autographs alongside his dad. So somebody from 1998 has an autograph from a three-year-old, and now that guy is a borderline all-star major leaguer. Uh, from a 2018 article, from three months old to the age of six, Lane Thomas attended almost every one of the 23 national races per year where his father competed. Once he started kindergarten, Thomas would stay back until the school year was over and then spend his summers traveling the country with hot rods. That is so cool. Like That is an extremely cool childhood and backstory. He might be a trade guy, right? He turns 28 in August, first time arbitration eligible this year. Teams who could use a righty hitting, right fielder, DH kind of type, pretty much everybody. Texas would be great. Milwaukee, Seattle, Chicago, Cubs. There, It seems to me a high probability he is going to be a guy that they trade because this is a sell-high situation for a rebuilding Nationals team. Lane Thomas, 
from the Hot Rod Thomases. I was so excited about that. And just just two days ago on uh, on June 28th, our friends at Cespedes Family Barbecue tweeted out the following stat, which I thought was amazing. This is two days old, so I, I did not get a chance to update it. So maybe outdated now, but pretty recent. So I think we'll, we'll, we'll go with it. Most games in 2023 with at least one hit. Bo Bichette has 63. Ronald Cunha Jr. has 63. Marcus Simeon has 62. And Lane Thomas has 62. More than Luis Arise. More than Luis Arise. <laughs> yes. Which I think is pretty awesome. I love stuff like that. The hot rod thing. Yeah, my dad was a mortgage broker. Definitely not as exciting <laughs> as driving hot rods. Um, um, so my guy for this week pitches for the Texas Rangers, and he has been by far the best reliever for the Texas Rangers, a team that desperately needed some some bullpen help and has helped them maintain their lead in the American League West, and that is Josh Spores. Over the last 30 days, only Felix Bautista of the Orioles has, has a higher war amongst relievers, according to Fangraphs. On the season, he ranks eighth in Major League relievers in Fangraphs' war. Um, it is a tale as old as time for re- pop-up relievers. When he debuted in 2019, he was throwing his four-seam fastball more than 64% of the time. Now he's throwing it literally half as often. Um, his K rate has jumped to 36%. His walk rate is down to 7%. He's really kind of a three-pitch guy. He's got a fastball, which he throws like 96, 97. So it's like legit velocity. Then a slider and a curveball, which are kind of similar in velocity. And you watch his, you watch him pitch. And what's interesting about his curveball is that like his slider is definitely one of the classic like tail low and away from right-hand hitters or back foot at left-hand hitters. But the curveball is just like, it's total just like deception up in the zone. It's a rare, it almost reminds me, it was like Lucas Giolito, I feel like at his best would would, would throw a curveball like that, where it's almost just like his, it's it's almost like a chest high curveball where hitters just like don't expect it at all. It's not really a pitch that you you see pitchers succeeding with very often. And maybe it's not something that's sustainable, but for right now, He's been the best best reliever on the Rangers. He was actually a, re- a second round pick of the Dodgers in 2015. And if you did not, if you do not follow college baseball, he was like a kind of a superstar in the college baseball world at the University of Virginia. He started the final game of the 2014 of the College World Series for Virginia. Virginia, a three two loss against Vanderbilt. Um, and then the next year they had a rematch in the championship series, and Virginia beat. Vanderbilt and Spores was the most out, most outstanding player of the 2015 College World Series for Virginia. He toiled with the Dodgers for a few years, debuted with them in 2019, as I mentioned. Never really popped, didn't really happen for him. And then in 2021, in February, he was designated for assignment um, to make room. It's it's cringy to say it in retrospect. He was actually designated for assignment to make room for, for Trevor Bauer when the Dodgers signed Trevor Bauer. Um, so I don't know if there's some karmic payback there for the Dodgers to see the way that Sports is pitching for the Rangers. He eventually was actually part of a trade to the Rangers February 16th of 2021. Dodgers traded uh, Sports to the Rangers for John Zambrano, um, minor leaguer, and uh, here he is, uh, been the best reliever on the Rangers. A good story for a team that is one of the pleasant surprises of the season this year in Major League Baseball. I love this. I, I have some biographical information to add here. He is one of the two Major League pitchers. Uh, his brother also pitched in the Major Leagues, and Jay Zaboris pitched in exactly one Major League game. He was with the Tigers in 2010. He got called up and they were actually playing against the Mets. And it was a game that Justin Verlander started. And Verlander only lasted in the third inning because there was a long rain delay. 
All right, so after the rain delay, he doesn't come out. Here comes Jay Zbors and hits his first batter, Rod Barajas, with a pitch and hits his second batter, Jeff Francoeur, with a pitch. And before you know it, he has gone and he's allowed in two-thirds of an inning five runs. And that was it. And he never pitched in the major leagues again. And I guess it's cool to say, you know, hey, I relieved Justin Berlander. Like, that's cool. But he has a career ERA of 67.50. And I assume that Josh Zbors always lets him know about that. But that's cool. I like I like this one because it's fun to say spores. That's part of it. But because when we think about the Rangers' success, we talk a lot about like they spent so much money on Seager and Simeon and DeGrom and all these guys. And every time there's a team that kind of comes out of nowhere to, to succeed, there's always stories like this, right? It's not just the guys we bought, it's the guys we trade for. It's just like this out of nowhere guy who progresses to become a, a big part of the team. So like this, I like this one a lot. And maybe he'll be a teammate of Lane Thomas in a month or so when Lane Thomas inevitably gets traded because I could see the Rangers being that team. It could work. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show, have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.